This is the first part of a two-part interview with Dean Butler from Little House on the Prairie answering fan questions. Dean is just a blast. Enjoy. Okay, well, today uh, we have a fantastic day, actually. Uh, today we are with Dean Butler once again from Little House on the Prairie who played Almanzo Wilder. And uh, yeah, I mean, it just doesn't get any better. We're, we're here today. He's going to answer fan questions and uh, which have been sent in. I've been kind of putting them together. And uh, yeah, Dean's, I guess Dean's on the hot seat. Here he goes today to answer all these questions. So welcome, Dean. Uh, thanks, John. Oh, happy to. And, uh, you know, I always say if it look, if it's a question that I don't know the answer to, I'll just say I don't know the answer to it. So. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let's start off right away. Um, this is from Jacqueline. And Jacqueline says, do you like Michael as a person? Or did you like Michael as a person? And how did working with him influence your life? And did he did you actually get a chance to say goodbye to him? That's a great question. You know, um, Jacqueline, I would say that, I mean, I love the way Karen Grassley described the relationships that we all had uh, years ago. She said, you know, we're not, we were not like, as a whole, we were not like a, a close-in family. We were more like cousins. We were more like, you know, second or third cousins where we know each other, I mean, we know each other, we respect each other, mm -hmm. but we we work together, but we don't really deep down know each other. Yeah. Now, that's not universally true. I mean, there are certainly cast members. I mean, I think Melissa Gilbert would say that she knew Michael extremely well. And that that was an extraordinarily special relationship that she had with him. And it was very much a father-daughter kind of relationship. I mean, she'll talk about the fact that, that Michael was like a father to her in a very real way uh, throughout those, or certainly throughout those early years. She spent weekends in his house with his kids. I mean, it, it, she was constantly plugged in there. Wow, I didn't know that. Oh yeah, no, 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 very much so. I mean, that was a very, very close, special relationship. Hmm. Uh, I, I would say, you know, on a really personal level, I did not know Michael. I, I would, I knew him as, as my boss. I knew him as someone that was, that I acted with. I knew him as all of that in, in that way. But I didn't really know deep down what Michael thought of about things and he didn't know deep down what I thought about things it's we just it we didn't explore that and I think you know and I've struggled with that through the years I thought well you know I wish I'd had that but on the other hand that wasn't part of the deal yeah the deal was to come in and do your work and do it as well as you could do it and that was our contract with each other that we would, you know, Michael's contract with me was, and he did say this to me early on, I will never let you look bad on the show. You know, I will always make you look as, as good as, as you can look in this. Um, and I think he meant that aesthetically and creatively. I think he, you know, I, I think he meant, you know, he wanted everybody to look good. That's impressive, uh, by the way. That's really impressive. That's nothing to take for granted. Yeah, no, and I, and I and I don't think that that's yes, I don't think that that's always true. But I think that was very important to him to have people come off well. 
Um, but you know, we didn't get into we didn't get into quiet, in-depth conversations about sort of the you know how we felt about the world mm -hmm. as, as a whole. Certainly, I wasn't sharing how I felt about the world as a whole. Michael could hold court with anybody. Oh yeah, I'm sure. You know, and, and so you know, people would gather around him on the set, and they would listen to stories. And you know, and he was a wonderful communicator. He was funny. He was witty. He was you know very incredibly bright thoughtful guy but michael was always controlling you know he was always controlling the the content of mm -hmm. the conversation um and when i look at everything that michael was responsible for executive producing the program writing the program uh directing the program a lot of the time starring yeah. the program throughout I mean, his workload was absolutely off the charts I mean, there and i think at the time when you're there you don't really recognize what someone is doing you right. know, the depth of their involvement watching dailies every day going you know getting up at five o'clock in the morning to write scripts and play tennis with his kids before he goes off to work wow working, you know going to dailies during lunch writing between scenes every day with the yellow legal pad in his hand i mean he was totally immersed in this and i think all of us you know when i was 23 when i started on the program you know, I was coming at this from a different perspective than the children had. You know, they just were looking for a buddy. And, uh, you know, and, a guy, and Michael was wonderful fun for the kids. Right, right. Um, yeah, because they didn't want anything from it. They just, they just wanted to have fun. They were just there to have a good time. Yeah. I think, it was, I think he was a little more careful with the older cats because we all wanted something from it. We all wanted more content you know more scenes more more money more we wanted everyone wanted more everything it's sort of that insatiable thing that of you've course. got michael had to sort of keep us all at arm's length and and i think he also had to be careful because he did wear all these hats you know if, if you got into a problem with the director you also had a problem with the star the writer and the executive producer Right. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a compartmentalized situation where you could you could have seek out allies elsewhere. Michael was the show. <laughs> right, exactly. And um and that was fantastic from the con in the context of having control over it, shaping it the way he wanted it to be. But it 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 was hard for anyone else to to exert any kind of attempt to exert any kind of influence. I mean, it just didn't happen. No one else had any influence over the content of the show. And because he was all of those jobs. Wow. So, you know, so yes, the long, long-winded answer. I was not close to Michael. <laughs> I had massive respect for Michael. Sure. Did you get a chance to say goodbye to him? I wrote him a letter. When I knew he was, when everyone knew that he was, um, that he was sick, I did not, I did not attempt to, um, 
you know, Kent McRae, who was our producer, really control, I think was really in control of access to Michael at that point. I mean, I'm sure I could have called Kent and asked, but I felt like Michael was in, you know, Michael was fighting for his life every minute. Yeah. I, I just I just wanted them to know as best as I could express it that I was thinking about him, that I was hoping for the best. And so, you know, we were still in that hoping for the best phase. I wasn't saying goodbye to him. I right. was I was hoping for the best. Right. Um, you know, there's there's never a creative situation that I go into today where I don't think about how Michael might have done something, mm -hmm. how, and as I've gotten older and thought about it more, my appreciation for what he did and how he did it grows exponentially. Sure, sure. He, he, he was an extraordinary creative force. Yeah. So uh, Jacqueline's quite, you know, uh, just I, I'm all in on Michael and it doesn't mean I uh, agree with him every second, but I had massive respect for the fact that it didn't matter if I agreed, you know, right. I mean, it's, right. no one was asking for my opinion. No right. one was asking for He wasn't asking for anyone's opinion. <laughs> yeah. You know, we were going to do it this way. And because we did it that way, it worked so well. Little House was, yeah. you know, after, after the pilot, Little Man, uh, brother, Little House was one man's vision. Yeah, I can see that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Um, I had Karen Grassley on actually since the first time you and I spoke on the show. Uh -huh. And um, she said that uh, she was able to say goodbye to Michael. She called him like a year yeah. ahead. Yeah. But it was just purely timing. It wasn't that she had, you know, they just happened to have this moment to talk and rekindle. And, and she yeah. she said just how much that meant to her to have that closure. Yeah. Um, so I get it. I, I I totally get it. That was just uh, fluke and timing on her end, but it worked out yeah, well. Yeah, I I have massive admiration for Karen too. I I think that she she dealt with a lot in yeah. that in in that situation. She wrote about it pretty extensively in her book. Mm -hmm. It didn't make everyone happy. No, she wrote. I mean, it you right. know, it I made know. people very unhappy. What she wrote, but I watched her. You know, and I wasn't there every minute, mm -hmm. but I watched how she dealt. And she was working so hard to do the best that she could do all the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, as he was, as of course, as everyone was, but she really, you know, she didn't get, she didn't get the, the rehearsal time with him. She didn't get that. There was so much that she didn't get with him because of all the other hats he right, was, and she had to be so in sync with, with him. Yeah, I, I think that she did the work that they did together is just off the charts, terrific. Mm -hmm. I and, agree. So uh, I, I have a huge amount of admiration for Karen and her discipline, her focus, um, her commitment to doing the best she could do was absolutely top of the line. Wow. Well, hey, but just so I don't forget, because I'm going to have our viewers or whatever and people listening, that will be like, wait, 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 where's that? Where's that first interview with Dean? Where's that first one with Karen or whatever? Just in case you are hearing this and not watching it, go to www.youtube.com slash That's Classic TV. You can see the first interview with Dean that I did. You can see the one with Karen. And then you'll actually be able to see this one, too, and actually see us on camera. OK, let's go to our next one. Um, this is from Melanie. 
<laughs> Sorry, but I looked through these, but now I'm looking again. It just this one cracked me up. How did you feel about being called manly? Well, it beats some of the other things you could be called. <laughs> it it could have, you know, uh, look, it was, um, yeah, that's an interesting, that's an interesting thing. I mean, it speaks to the fact that I mean, there's interesting around that we mispronounced the character's name. You know, his right. name was, should have been pronounced Almanzo. We pronounced it Almanzo. If we had pronounced it correctly, you know, Laura, this is my brother Almanzo. Nice to meet you, Manly. <laughs> would have made a lot more sense. Right. As it was, this is my brother Almanzo. She should have said, nice to meet you, Manly. I mean, it's like, but that's not the way it worked. And I don't know why anybody didn't catch it. I certainly was not in a position on my first day, second <laughs> scene, I wasn't going to ask a question about that. I, that was well beyond my pay grade. Um, I always blame Lucy Flippin for it because she was the first one to say the name on camera. So, you know, but, but this, this was set in stone a long time before right. we ever got to the set. Someone had made this decision. Um, so, no, I mean, look, flattering. Uh, it, it's, it, you know, it's a little girl's or a young girl's infatuation. Um, I mean, I've been getting called that facetiously for my, you know, and, and fun for my whole life since then <laughs> time, but among my little house cohorts, you know, it, it comes up. Um, oh, is that funny? No, I mean, what, a you know, look, what a nice, oh. what, what a nice thing. I mean, you know, great thing. Yeah. Okay. Our next one, this is from Cindy. When re-watching Little House reruns or talking to fans about specific episodes, do you have any surprising emotions that have come up? Mm -hmm. I think when I, when I watch it, and I don't watch it all the time, um, but when I watch it, I think what I think what I'm struck by, particularly in those emotional moments, is the way that the emotional life sneaks up on you. Um, and I give massive credit to David Rose, our composer for that, who mm. wrote these beautiful cues that puts the audience in the mindset, you know, music in film and television is subtext. It's, tell it's telling you what we want you to be thinking about. It's telling you the emotional state we want to put you in. And, and music is so primal. It, it communicates on very deep, um, sometimes hard to verbalize why it touches us the way it does, but yeah. music does touch us in a very particular way. And, you know, when David, when David's cues would start on wonder, some wonderful shimmer of a violin and then progress into a really beautiful melody and you see people with the tear in their eye and and the hug moment or the you know the whatever the moment is david projected that emotion onto all of us and i marvel at how what a spectacular job he did with that i i've long believed look with all respect to uh all of us and the work that we did but david's the one that made us cry Wow. You know, David's music made us cry because he caught us in this emotional 
place. Mm-hmm. You caught the audience and put them in this emotional state where everything was collaborating to bring you to this emotional spot. The yeah. words, the setting, the, the camera angles, but but most of all, the music was, and one cannot understate the importance of the music to the emotional impact of Little House. It was just huge. I agree. It's like you can kind of hear it in your head. I mean, it is one of those shows where you connect so deeply with people. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Um, Okay, this is from Kim in Des Moines, Iowa. In season seven, The Wedding, did you and Melissa have any special preparation or offset discussion around the ceremony? It just feels so sincere. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I'm sorry, and this is, who's, who's the, the uh, person? Kim. Kim, Kim. No, this wasn't like when when you get married in your real life, where there is a, a conversation behind the scenes, where beforehand, where the bride, bride and groom get together, <laughs> and they discuss what they, what they want, the reverend, the priest, the justice of the peace, whatever, to say. Right. And uh, they said, we had, other than reading it beforehand, because you know, the, the, the preacher's lines were all written. We could know what they said. Yeah. But uh, no, we had no input on that. But one thing that was very well choreographed was the kiss afterwards. Michael wanted the kiss to look a very particular way. Hmm. So, you know, the kiss was posed in, entirely so that, you know, you'd get this it's just a very it's sort of a romance novel kiss yeah and and he and he wanted that and it was this beautiful um it's a beautiful kiss it's a it's Mm -hmm. a it's a beautiful pose and her neck arched back and you know her back arched and having her around with the arm around the waist and pulling her in and and the angle of our heads and what I mean, all of that, Michael knew exactly how he wanted that to look. And so we, he posed us and we, and we moved into that position for the kiss. And then all the coverage was done, you know, and I don't think there was a whole lot of coverage. I mean, I think. How did you, one, a couple of things. How did you, one, keep a straight face? Okay. Because you're, you're having to come right in, whatever. I've seen that moment. I know what you're talking about. And it looks great, by the way. It really does. But how the heck did you keep the, you know, the sincerity and the level of emotion knowing that, okay, and I'm going to turn my head this way and she's going to bet. How'd you do that? I think it's just, you know, it's just like, that's the, that that's the, that's the job in that moment. You know, we, we're wow. there to create a moment that's going to be set in time and, um, you know, and look, I think if Melissa and I had been closer in age mm-hmm. through all of that, where we would have had some degree of comfort with each other in, a, in an intimate way, yeah. we might have been able to have more fun with that moment. But, you know, as it was, we were there to we were there to be as all actors are in film and television you are a you are a tool of the director right in you know in that moment and it's our job to give the director 
what he is looking for. Now, at a certain level, that may not be true. The actor can exert a certain amount of dominance over a situation, but with Michael Landon, no one's exerting dominance over right. anything. I, I don't think I would have, uh, I don't think I would have done that moment any differently. Wow. You know, it's a beautiful moment. I think what's so interesting about that episode is that we were really the second story in that episode. It, the story, the story that really got people's hearts was the Eliza Jane story falling in love with Harv Bennett and having this unrequited love and being being devastated as her as her brother is having what you know should be the happiest moment of his life right but michael really had us looking at her mm -hmm. and, you know so the wedding happened you know in real life the way laura wrote the wedding i mean that you know they the two of them laura had on a black cashmere dress um goes to the justice of the peace he comes in they do this in his living room you know, she says, I won't say obey in the, you know, in the vows. Uh, she tells him that beforehand. Wow. So he says, okay, you don't have to say obey. I don't expect you to obey. Um, which was a very forward thinking thing. Oh, for a woman. huge, huge. In, in, that, in that time. Here we're talking about the 1880s now. It's I mean, crazy, I, actually. Yeah. It's pretty, um, it is remarkable. Um, but that's how she felt about it. And he was very forward thinking and respectful of her that he would never have demanded her to say obey. Wow. But Michael wanted to, I think going back to the episode, Michael wanted to take the pressure off of this moment. So he created this story around, around uh, Eliza Jane to have a, a sort of a yin yang thing. And so the, the wedding, the, the marriage is actually sort of an afterthought. That's wild. It, it was certainly it, in, the, in the context of the way the episode was written. Right. It's really a last minute thing. It wasn't like they built up to this moment. Right. It just, in the end, it just happened. Mm -hmm. and, um, and it was beautiful. It was, you know, it was, uh, but, you know, we weren't, we weren't wearing anything special. There was no, you know, I was standing there in my work clothes. Right, exactly. You know, yeah. I mean, there was there was no he wanted it to be important, but not emphasized. Yeah. And uh, and Lucy's story, Eliza Jane's story was really the one that broke your heart. Now, yeah. I, the rate, the episode got a wonderful rating. I think, you know, NBC promoted it as Laura's getting married. Yeah. No question about that. But I, the other part of the story was, I think, a surprise for the audience and was very moving because. You know, and Harv Bennett was played by Jamie Cromwell. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, yeah, this is really like first-rate knockout stuff oh, with yeah. him. And um, and Lucy Flippin was wonderful in this episode with this very stoical heartbreak that she mm -hmm. was playing. And she has the last line in the episode. She she has the last line of of dialogue or a voiceover in the episode where she says, I'm happy, really I am for wow. my brother.
it, it's really uh it's really sweet now i forget completely what the what the question was oh yeah <laughs> you answered it it was more or less like what took place in the, you know your thoughts right. okay. how it worked out okay. Yeah. okay yeah okay. you got the story yeah i'm gonna you know what i'm gonna jump i, I i'm gonna come back to this other question that's here because I, this one hits home based on what you just said knowing that background on laura ingles and everything like that stephanie in denver colorado what drives you to be so deeply connected to Laura Ingalls Wilder material? I think she's referencing more. You, you've gone far beyond the show. I mean, the documentaries, your research. What what has? I, it's actually a great question, Stephanie. What has driven you? I just think I, I love what the books say and how they say it. Um, you know, I didn't. I wasn't really focused on the books when we were making the show. I, you know, I I asked Michael what I should read to help me sort of get in the zone with what we were doing. And, <laughs> and he said, in typical Michael Lanning fashion, he said, all you need to read is what I write. That's <laughs> just, just do what I'm asking you to do. Everything's going to be fine. Wow. And, um, you know, I mean, so much of that is, is casting. You know, Susan McRae, she was Susan Sukman then, was casting our program. Her job was to bring in people that she felt fit into this world. Mm -hmm. And if she did her job well, the people who were hired, and Michael said yes to everybody, he had right. to. But the people who were hired were people that, she and Michael both concurred, we're going to fit into this world. So 90% of the work is done wow. at that point. Just the right person with the right sensibilities steps into that world and you believe them because yeah. they're, the, they're, they're the right person. I got really involved or I got much more interested in it afterwards as a, as a historical matter why? Because I started visiting the home sites. Huh. I started going to the places where Laura lived and the places she wrote about. And I started seeing, I mean, I began to see that how real this was, mm -hmm. that this really was her life. These places where she lived are tiny little places. I mean, they are, Laura did not live. She visited San Francisco. She went to, you know, she, she went places, but Laura lived in very quiet, out of the way places. Right, um, right. And you could, when you go to those places, you feel her presence there. Mm. When you when you go now, she didn't write about Rocky Ridge Farm in her books. She wrote, but she wrote her books there. When you go to Rocky Ridge Farm in uh, in Mansfield, Missouri you feel like Lauren Almanzo just stepped out to go to town for a little while. Wow. It, I mean, they've done a beautiful job of preserving that home. It's a, you know, it's like, it's, it's just, it's not quite a dollhouse, mm -hmm. but it's smaller than the house that we would have today in terms of it's, it's not a small house. It's a pretty right. good house, but it's, it's on a different scale for two small people. She was five feet. He was five, five, five two, maybe. She, wow. he was five eight. I, you know, uh, 
by today's standards, little people. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, well, not little people, no, but, but they were short. People. Yeah, short. Smaller yeah. people. So We've all gotten taller apparently over yeah, the years. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's our diets have improved, or, or gotten worse depending on right. Where exactly. But um, no, I, I, and I became. I really was touched by the affection that people have for this material. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are people who are so moved by Laura's books, and you know, our series didn't really. I mean, we pulled the major thread. The you know the right, but you didn't follow it. For, yeah, no. I mean, there was no way there were not two hundred episodes of the show in those books. It right. just wasn't there. I mean, we could we burned. We went through the first book, or Little House on the Prairie, was burned off in the pilot. Yeah, right. So there's two hours. That one, that whole book is gone, and then the la the second of the last book. The book, the last book that she released, these happy golden years, was Sweet Sixteen. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I, she loved, you know, he loves me, he loves me not, and Laura Ingalls Wilder. So then you have, so you have five hours there right. that burns through another book. So yeah. seven hours, two books gone. <laughs> That's crazy. I mean, there, there was no way these books were going to support. And look, there are people who were outraged by the fact that the that the series didn't stick to the oh sure it's what, gonna happen. what i what i loved i'll tell you john what i loved and what i would say to anybody what michael did brilliantly i think is he captured the tone of the books the feeling of the books was there on the screen the stories Sometimes, very, you know, on the particularly with the Lauren Almanzo story, that was probably as close to a pull with the books as there really was. Right. Story, which didn't really happen at all until season six. So you have the pilot to season six. Right. A long time. First, you know, third book, eighth book. Yeah. Um, and beyond that, yes, there were things, but the places, some of the place, the names of the places, Walnut Grove, obviously, but, you know, purists right. would say, well, the book should have taken place in Desmet. Well, you know, you tell me, which is the more romantic name? Walnut Grove or Desmet? <laughs> With all respect to Desmet. Right. I get it. There are many it. times, I love Desmet. Desmet is not a romantic sounding name. There right. is something embracing and idyllic about the name Walnut Grove. I agree with you. Yeah. I don't know if there's a walnut tree in Walnut Grove. I, mean, <laughs> right, I, don't know. Exactly. I, I, haven't, I haven't looked close. Maybe there is. I, right. I don't but know. But it sounds so good. But it's great. It's a yeah. wonderful name. And you needed to put the, you're going to invest all this money in sets and, and all of that. They did one little, you know, move to Mankato during the run of the series but basically it all took place in walnut grove yeah that's what it needed to do economically in order to make it make sense financially to do it and the show always worked financially oh, it gosh. was enormously profitable and it always came in under budget oh yeah oh yeah all right i'll give you another one and this is a long did I answer that did i answer that why did i get so interested yeah i mean so yeah i think i got i i just i love what it means yeah, and I love what it means to the people who read it. I'm very moved by it when I read the books. Agreed. I've done a bunch of read out loud reads, and uh, I'm very moved by the way 
she wrote this. The the sweetness of it, the simplicity of it, it's very visual. Yes. So, you know, it's it, it's you you feel their lives happening as you read these books, but it's intimate little stories of life and times in these simple little places under some really unbelievably challenging conditions. Exactly. She made it lovely. She made it the most difficult condition she made there was some she made them beautiful mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you know in a very in a very special way uh, i i adore it and uh i i'm i'm a big fan and i'm i'm support i'm all in forever on laura Ingalls wilder okay no i get it i get it between you and allison it's like the legacy goes on i mean i'm telling you it's <laughs> unbelievable i think it's funny you know i'm asking you these questions and i'm thinking at first, I looked at him. I'm like thinking, "Wow, we got we've got quite a few, but do we have enough?" But there's so much to talk about with Little House. How could there not be enough questions? Okay, here's one. Now she spells this out a little bit more, so bear with me. But her name is D. She says, "My question for Mr. Butler is: Have you ever, or would you consider creating a mini series about Laura Ingalls Wilder, the author? I read the book Prairie Fires last summer and could not put it down." I think the millions of people who love Little House, the books, the TV series, would love to know more about what happened to Laura and Almanzo and their daughter Rose after they left for uh, left South Dakota. Struggled to make a success at Rocky Ridge and ultimately wrote some of the most enduring books ever written for children. This yeah. is a side note she wants me to say to you. I watched the documentary made about uh, you made about Almanzo. Clearly, you have the talent and abilities to create something amazing about a subject that means a great deal to you. Have you oh, ever been in the works to do so? So that's yeah. a couple of questions, but go yeah, ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, look, I agree. Um, I agree with Dee. It's a wonderful topic area. Uh, that dynamic between this, that dynamic between Laura and Rose mm-hmm. is a fascinating, very complex, highly nuanced relationship. This was not an idyllic mother-daughter relationship. This no, was a I, very uh, complex, difficult Oh yeah, I agree with you on that one. Yeah. Um, I think it would make a fascinating drama. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know that there, I, I've heard that um, I have not done anything about this, but I have heard that there are people who are looking at it and not necessarily based on prairie fire that's been but and i have the book i haven't read it yeah um, but i have the book i have heard wonderful things about it um in our laura ingles wilder or little house on the prairie the legacy of laura ingles wilder documentary mm-hmm. which was really about her writing journey we touched on the dynamic the challenging dynamic of that relationship not in any great depth because there isn't time in 56 minutes to do that but um yeah it's 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 a it's a really really special powerful relationship you know for years there was this there was this aficionados of it were just rejecting the idea that rose had anything to do with this right right and you know and uh, you know this is all laura this is all laura that's what is this with rose no rose no rose when you go to the Hoover Library in, uh, you know, in 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 Iowa, and you go into their special collections room, and they pull out the box of the letters that go back and forth between, you know, Mama and Rose, 
Wow, is that cool, uh, by the way? Uh, you, you know, you get, they they drilled, I mean, you know, no cell phones, no, no telephone to just pick up the phone and talk to each other. These were long, drawn-out letters drilling down on the details of how they were telling these stories. Wow. There is no question that Rose had a huge influence mm -hmm. on mm -hmm. what Laura was doing. I mean, Rose, I think, made Laura a better writer. You know, Laura started writing in her, you know, in a, as a woman, she started writing newspaper articles. She started writing, you know, she had a, she had a newspaper column in the Missouri Ruralist called as a farm woman thinks. Um, you know, she, she wrote a lot, but she didn't, you know, she didn't start off writing for children. She initially wrote, she initially tried to write this for adults and Rose did write it for adults in her novels called When the Hurricanes Roar, When the Hurricane Roars, rather. Mm -hmm. And um, which, you know, many people feel, or I guess really plagiarized Laura's books. And she didn't tell her mother she was doing this. She just did it. Wow. And um, that was a very tough moment of uh, the sense I got is that it's a very tough moment between mother and daughter. The, the sense of betrayal was uh, was was palpable. You know, wow. it, like how could you have done this? But okay, it happened. Rose was writing for adults when when Prairie Girl was rejected multiple times as a book for adults. They finally started spinning it for they finally made the decision to spin it for children. And um, that's when it found its traction when a wonderful editor at Harper Collins, Harper and Brothers, and her name escapes me right now. And there, there are going to be 100 people in your audience who know exactly who I'm talking about. <laughs> oh, no, I guarantee you. Okay. He meant to say, no, I know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, he's talking about, yeah. <laughs> right. um, she read... When she read the first book, she thought, and this, you know, was written in 1932. Mm -hmm. So America is really descending into the depression at that right. point. Literally. Um, she thought this is a wonderful narrative for children who are dealing with very tough times in their own lives right now. And this is a, and, and an adventure story in earlier times written from a young girl's perspective was a very unique thing very at, yeah. at that time so that's what sort of gripped her this editor oh, i can't believe i can't tell you her name yeah, that's fine it, it leaves it, something it open for her, yeah it, it gripped her and um the books came to harper collins in really good shape when she started delivering the books and they so they picked up the second one and you know laura had no idea this was going to be a series she she wrote a little house in the big woods and then thought well i need to write about almanzo i want to write about his childhood so she comes up with farmer boy yeah, great book. but the book that really uh love farmer boy but when the book that she real that really sort of captured the public's imagination and he was little house on the prairie yeah. and that's how the book got its overarching um overarching title and uh, as a series and and then she was she was off and running at that point and you know she wrote the books from 1932 through 1930 
1938 through the early 40s. God, is that wild? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. did you, just in short, before we go to the next question, have you been in the works at any point on trying to put together a project? I know you've done the documentary, which by the way, the documentary you mentioned, excellent. Mm -hmm. Love that. But um, what uh, have you, or have you been approached at any point to try and, and do, you know, a, a, you know, I guess a regular, you know, TV show uh, on any level? No, you know, our, no, uh, the answer is no. The, our property is a very complex property from yeah. a rights standpoint. So, mm -hmm. you know, you have the Little House Heritage Trust, which controls the words to the books. Right. Controls all of Laura's writings. Um, and then you have Friendly Family Productions, which uh, in 1972 bought the film, television, and merchandising rights to those books. Wow. And it was, and it was under that agreement that the Little House series was made. Wow. Um, and to do anything related to Little House, if you're dealing, I mean, what's, you know, the great thing about doing something about mother and daughter is you're not having to deal right with the Little House Heritage Trust or with Family Family Productions at that point. You, it's, you have to deal with the people who are the sources of that material, but both Laura and Rose are public figures. Right. So, you know, you have a much, I think, a much clearer avenue mm -hmm. to explore a story like that. As far as doing something, you know, Friendly Family Productions has been trying to reboot Little House for years, and it's it has never quite worked. And it's it's sort of a it, it's sort of a mystery mm -hmm. why it, it hasn't worked. But on the you know, on the upside of what we did. You know, the show continues to perform so wonderfully on huh. cable as a streaming show. Um, you know, people continue to love it and watch it. And it's its own little world separate and apart from the books, other than those sort of, you know, those few intersections of of, of the Lauren Almanzo story right. and the pilot and so on. Yeah. But, it's, but again, I think the series is so beautiful as a vehicle to tell stories about people, about families, about community, about love, about loss, about forgiveness. It's, you know, these were things that were really important to Michael to tell stories about. Again, John, I completely forget what the question was. Uh, <laughs> well, you know what? Dean, if we forget about the question always, it really doesn't matter. For, we're, we're enjoying talking about Little House. Who okay. cares? Okay. Right. Okay. So, <laughs> I got one for you. Okay, this is from, gosh, I don't know. Let me see here. Oh, oh okay. Uh, this is from Susan. Can you tell us anything about filming the episode Sunshine and Shadows? One of my very favorites. So Days of Sunshine, Days of Shadow was uh, was the name. It was a two-part episode. The first, the first episode was 90 minutes. The second episode was an hour. It oh, was wow. done towards the tail end of season eight. And it was done, it was done to test the waters as to whether Melissa and I could carry the series if it were to go into a ninth year. Oh wow. Because Michael was getting ready to step away. He had done, he had done everything. I I think he really felt that he had done everything that he could do 
as Charles Ingalls. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the gold of what Michael did, so much of it revolved around those quiet moments with the children sitting in his lap, around a campfire, at the dinner table, driving in the wagon. Michael was golden. He was golden in every moment. But yes. he was particularly powerful in those moments because there was such vulnerability in his eyes. And he, he was able to show that to the children. Well, you know, he brought in Missy Francis and he brought in Jason Bateman to, you know, both wonderful kid actors. This was oh, Jason's yeah. first job. Um, wow. Wow. That's wild. Um, and, you know, he got that with them. But he played so many of those stories. You know, he he'd done those stories, and he, I just think when, you know, when Laura said "I do," that core relationship, that Pa Laura relationship, which had been so critical to the early success of the show, and anybody who's watched those early seasons, it's an incredible relationship that they created. Yeah, so yeah, you know, agree. once she's once she's married he can't play those scenes with her anymore. You know, she's somebody else's woman now. Yeah. And, um, Do you remember like when you were filming it, like any of the, you know, any of that emotion coming forth or any- You're talking yeah, about Days of Sunshine now. Yeah, yeah, what were you thinking? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, loved, I, I loved the episode, John, because it had a, it, um, it asked of me as the actor to play um, some physical limitations or conditions that presented themselves, whether it be the, you know, diphtheria, the stroke, um, mm -hmm. so being then being paralyzed, and it also asked me to play a different emotional tone. You know, the way Michael wrote it, Almanzo was really feeling sorry for himself. He was just sort of a, you know, he was really giving up, and Laura's fighting for the relationship, and he's pushing her away because he feels like he's not a man anymore and uh he's not the man that he that she fell in love with and so he's you know he's sort of pushing her away i think as people do if they feel like they you know are somehow less than right um, he you know he, he pushed her away and then he finds himself in the in the in the third act or at the end of the second act of the second part and rebuilds himself and rebuilds them a house you know with with pa's help um which is pretty cool actually one of my favorite scenes like ever was the in the for me in the series was the scene when laura comes up to the house with ma and sees the house for the first time and almanzo rises up out of the wheelchair and has this as again david rose with this beautiful cue which was lauren almanzo's theme mm -hmm playing softly underneath this thing as Almanzo is sort of, you know, walking very slowly, steadily, stoically across the yard to her, telling her that it, everything's going to be okay. Yeah. And then, of course, cut to Melissa, and she's like, you know, the tears are coming, and she's shocked, and heavy she had one. no idea any of this was going on. That's the way it was set up. And so, you know, it was this, it was this, there were a lot of terrific moments in that uh in that episode and and the audience came you know the audience came big time and the numbers were really big yep. on that 
and we got the ninth year, you know, because I think largely based on, you know, on that episode. So um, at least wow. it said that we could do, we could, you know, we could provide some of the muscle. Mm -hmm. um, whether it actually played that way in the ninth year, you know, I don't know that it actually played out that way, but I think we showed that given if we were given an opportunity to play something together that we really could. And yeah. you know, so, so that was, that was a nice affirmation. Very cool. The second part of my interview with Dean Butler answering more fan questions will be released very soon.